Hey, this is Melissa Green, and you are listening to Grace Point Church's podcast. Our vision statement at Grace Point is loving God, loving self, and loving others. If you want to find out more, visit gracepoint.net. Well, as we continue our, our vision casting series, Turn You Northward, of course, taken from the story of the children of Israel at the end of their 40 years of wandering. The Bible says that the Lord spoke to Moses and said, tell the people that they have encompassed this mountain and they have been in this wilderness long enough. Tell them that I have been with them the whole way and this has been good work, but it's time to turn northward, which was not a new direction. It was an old direction. It was the direction they had been going from the beginning. It was simply to catalyze the movement toward a final resting place. A final resting place that in itself would really be no rest, but would bring whole new activities. So to that end, Turn Ye Northward is not a series or a position paper or sermon about new direction. It's the direction that was always in the heart of God and always intended by the people. But it was simply time to take the final leg of that momentous journey. So as we continue this series, we're going to address the second of three seminal questions, three questions that I think will shape a life, a spiritual journey, three questions that will shape an organization, three questions that the leaders of ISIS right now are considering, three questions that people in Ferguson, Missouri are asking themselves right now as they arbitrate a terribly difficult situation. Three questions that on the either, either side of Gaza, human beings are asking. Three seminal spiritual questions. Phyllis Tickle reminded us three questions that always come to the fore at any epoch in church history or human history. The three questions are the first, a question of God for us, theists who believe in God. The first question is wherein lies authority? And by wherein lies authority, we're asking the question, wherein lies authority by which we may find direction, answers for our decisions and our actions? Who has the final say on how I live my life? Who has the final say on who gets what property in the Middle East? Who has the final say? on who makes war and when? Who has the final say on who lives and who dies? Who has the final say on the large and small issues of life? Wherein lies authority is an incredibly important spiritual question for individuals and nations. The second question that we'll be addressing today is what is the nature of humanity? Phyllis, an 80-year-old woman, uh, felt no sense of drawing back from just simply saying, what is man? And by man, she meant anthropos, not what is male. There are sensitivities there these days for gender-inclusive language, but please hear what Phyllis was asking. She wasn't asking what males are. She was asking, what is the nature of humankind? Who are we? Who am I and who are you? What is the nature of humanity? What is man? What is mankind? What are human beings? Who are we? And then the third question that we'll address next week in response to those two, the third important question asked by all of us is how then shall we live? 
in response to our belief that there is a God and that God is authoritative and that God communicates and we're seeking God's authority in our life, direction and wisdom. Maybe you like wisdom better than authority. Maybe authority is a worn out, abused word for some of you. Then wisdom, see? Yes, Lord, yes. We're on track. Now if lightning hits, um, don't take that too far. How then shall we live is the third question. So today we're addressing that second question, and this is a position paper for our church that I think 5, 10, 15, 20 years we will look back on, just as last week was. This is a pivotal moment in the life of our church. So we're addressing the second question, what is the nature of humanity? To begin our reflections today, I want to employ a famed Psalm of David that most of you have heard and read and known uh, but I would like for you to read with me, not just internally in your head, but let's read this psalm together as an act of worship. It's the eighth psalm, and we're going to read all nine verses of that. So would you open your mouths and hearts, and let's read this together. Uh, you might recognize this has been translated into a song a few years ago. O Lord, our sovereign, read it with me, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands you have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic just flows a little bit better, doesn't it? And that's the way we learned it in song, but what a beautiful psalm. When I look at your heavens, when I look at the work, literally, of your fingers, we've read it most of our lives, the work of your hands. The moon and the stars that you've established. The psalmist, the poet, on an evening observing creation, was spiritually moved because God speaks through creation. When I look at your heavens, I ask, there's a spiritual response to this experience that I'm having. And I ask, incredulous, um, amazed, and in a wonder-filled tone. And the question that I ask when I look at the vast expanse, or when I look through the microscope into the infinity of fraction and smallness, whatever, the question that I end up asking is what are human beings? And that's a great question. What are human beings, the psalmist said, that you are so mindful of them? We think so small of one another at times and sadly we think so small of ourselves at times. With a tone of incredulity, the psalmist said, but you're not like that. And when I look at how vast and big and how much you have to be interested in. I ask the question, who are we? 
mortals that you care so much for us. Verse five, the answer comes from inside, yet it is apparent, yet it is apparent that you are mindful and that you do care. And in spite of the way that we talk about one another, treat one another, and even self-disparage, yet, oh, that's an important therapeutic yet, yet in spite of the way humans treat humans, you have made them a little lower than God. And yes, I know many of you read that angels, but the Hebrew word is Elohim. Early translators were reticent to translate that God. It was easier even for the writer of Hebrews to translate Elohim as angels or divine beings. But that renders a polytheistic system because Elohim really isn't a good word for angels. Elohim was the plural of God that the Hebrew people conscripted to talk about our God. Finally, later, New Testament folks said, well, Elohim and its plurality was referring to the Trinity, but not so in the minds of the Hebrew people. They were simply using a word that was common to them. And the word was translated God. And so my translation, the New Revised Standard Version, as well as many, many translations render that, yet in spite of the way we see it, in spite of how small we think we are in the vast expanse, you have made us a little lower than God and you have crowned us with glory and honor. The question is, who are we? What are human beings? At some point in a person's reading of scripture, they become aware that among its many voices, and please bear with me today, it's gonna to get simple around here before too long, but this is a position paper and I need you to follow the logic here. At some point in a person's reading of scripture, they become aware that among its many voices and among the many themes and stories of scripture, there are two significant strains. There are two significant streams of thought and tone. You don't have to be very old and you don't have to be very wise. Even our children recognize these two streams that weave their way through our text. One stream is at the least somber. One strain of our scripture is at the least somber and even scary, yea, horrifying. It's focused on the vast complex mix of tragedy. Its focus is the reality of humans who cannibalize emotionally and physically, humans who press people to mountaintops and feel no pain that their children die there. One stream of scripture is somber, scary, and horrifying as it relates to us about this vast complex mix of tragedy, suffering, sin, evil, brokenness, betrayal, degradation, judgment, punishment, fear, bitterness, fallenness, condemnation, etc. And any religious tradition and any Christian church that omits that part of scripture and acts like it doesn't exist, though we might want to, is not doing themselves a favor. That stream of scripture is there because this is an inspired book. 
the other stream, the one that I like to talk about more and the one that you like to think about more. The other stream is at the least hopeful, uh, even glorious. Yea, as the other is horrifying, this stream is mind-blowing in its promises and projections. The interesting thing about these two streams is they weave themselves together, not in separate books, but in the same chapters and sometimes in the same verse and sentence. This stream, this strain of consciousness that weaves its way through the text focuses on the good, the redemptive, the beautiful, the pure, the qualitative, the virtuous. This strain focuses on the image of God and the crown of glory that humanity wears. The Bible is a book in its immense wisdom sets itself to, I think, the almost impossible, but all things are possible with God. The Bible is a book and its immense wisdom sets itself to the Herculean task of weaving these two seemingly dissonant, even, as some of you have read them, contradictory tones of Scripture. The Bible sets itself to the task of not omitting one to the preference of the other, but weaving these two strains allowing them to interplay into the story of creation, a story laced with the intentions of a benevolent creator of a loving God. Now I want to say this about all of our efforts for the first 2,000 years. Many of our efforts and much of our division has come down to the fact that these two strains stand side by side. Just like strains of free will and sovereignty that divide Reformed and Calvinist people from Arminian and Wesleyan people. Just like those who are sacramental, those who are more faith-oriented, these two strains of Scripture have separated us by and large. Maybe they haven't separated us as much as our inability to sit with the discomfort of their dissonance because we like to resolve all dissonance. We live in an either-or world. We love the beauty of black and white, and we think the only... The only alternative to black and white is a dismal gray, acting as though those three colors are the only three colors in the world, forgetting those 256 colors in the big Crayola box. There is more to this world than black and white, and there's more answer or resolve to black and white or alternative to black and white than just gray. There's a vast mystery of hue and shade, a vast mystery that drives some people crazy and leads other people to worship. In response to these two dissonant, contradictory-seeming strains, many systems of theology and doctrine have been developed to account for the presence and interplay of these two. The one strain driven by failure and judgment and punishment and fear is one I know well, and many of you know well. It was the one that, Steve, 95% of everything I ever heard in church focused on that strain. And there were credible verses and much material for them to use. The other strain is the strain of goodness and blessing and fulfillment and hope and love rooted in the goodness of God and the glory of humanity and creation. Both of these, I want to say this about these scriptural strains and admitting to those, both of these scriptural strains not only weave their way through the pages and books of scripture, but they weave their way through our own experiences as we, none of us, have to look very far. 
We don't have to look across the ocean and we don't have to look to another state, another city in Ferguson, Missouri. But we know these two strains that find their way through scripture for they weave their way into our own experiences. We don't have to look very far to see sadness, injustice, raw evil, and at the very least under the roof that we call home our own frailty and brokenness. And yet somehow there is the other strain, not just in the pages of scripture, but in the pages of our saddest story, in the paragraphs, in the verses, and the sentences of our own brokenness, somehow not just contiguous and abutted up to the other strain, but somehow almost inconceivably overlapping with it, the yin and the yang, the good and the bad and the bad and the good. Somehow we don't have to look very far in the midst of the injustice to see the wheat and the tares. On the surface, they look so different, but underneath subterranean, their roots grow together into such a vast complex that when you start pulling on the bad to get rid of it, it somehow messes with the good. We don't have to look far beyond Scripture to see, even in our own experience, these two strains cohabitating. What are we to make of these two strains that cohabitate in our story and always have. I personally believe our efforts to reconcile and to explain, I'm talking about the Christian community and the systems of theology we all grew up with. I believe that our efforts to reconcile and explain the presence of both brokenness and beauty, Dirk, your uncle, a great philosophical theologian, I just pulled his book off the shelf the other day, A Breviary on Sin. It was brilliant. Dirk comes from a family of massive theologians. Their effort to explain brokenness and beauty in the same construct of life, their effort to explain these two strains in the human frame, I think is time well spent, and I don't scoff at it, in our effort to be better, in our effort to be more responsible stewards of the gift of life, surely self-awareness and understanding is at the center of our journey toward wholeness, holiness. The psalmist, believe you me, was not unaware of this tension. The glorious strain that you heard in Psalm 8, the majesty of creation, the glory and honor bestowed upon humans, the dominion that we have in this universe, if you have time when you go home, read the five previous Psalms. Understand that Psalm 8 is juxtaposed against five previous Psalms, Psalm 3 through 7, which serve as utter laments of human suffering and evil. There is no lack of admission on the part of the psalmist who gives us Psalm 8 that this is indeed also a world of pain. But in spite of the preceding despair, the poet theologian does not get stuck in the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth psalm. It would be easy to stop and to simply stay the rest of your life in the despair of, oh Lord, why does wickedness prevail? Why is goodness scoffed at? But the psalmist turns and instead of lifting himself, is divinely lifted by the essence of the God inside of him above. 
And the psalmist looks away from ISIS. The psalm looks away from Ferguson. The psalm looks away from the injustice that even he has experienced. And one lonely night, he looks through the darkness and the despair, and he sees the constellations. And he remembers that there is goodness interwoven with this bad, that sometime in the midst of the most unjust war, acts of valor and kindness and love and self-sacrifice are given. O Lord, who is the lifter of my head, the psalmist said, the one who takes me by the chin and says, there's more to this story than that. It is a part of the story that we cannot deny, but he lifts my head, and when I see the heavens and the work of your hands, and I think about the brokenness of this world, I think, what is man? And before I can enter into a season of self-disparaging and self-loathing, before I can ultimately wish for a mass suicide, the likes of which grips the souls of those that we love most, even those who make us, like Robin did, laugh the hardest. The psalmist said, what are we? And before he could whisper, in his Parkinson's and through his self-medicating humor that no doubt Mr. Williams learned as a boy. The psalmist hears a divine voice that surely Robin hears now. And the poet-theologian concludes that God is indeed mindful of us with cause. God does indeed care for us with cause and does so because God has made us. And God has made us a little lower than God. We focus on lower because we have a tendency to self-disparage, and yet the psalmist was very careful to give an adjective that we are uncomfortable with because somehow self-disparagement and self-loathing protects us. We make jokes about ourselves for fear that someone else will. The pain is severe, but less so if it comes from our mouth and heart. But the psalmist says we are not made simply lower than God. The psalmist said we were made a little. Before you scream the worm theology of later psalms, remember this psalmist in a moment of recognizing the grace of God said we are a little. Not because we made ourselves, that would be foolish pride, but because God chose to make us. And when he fixed our position, Barbara, he fixed it a little lower than God. And God has crowned us with glory and honor. Of course, the psalmist is employing a sound in, I think, uh, a reasonable interpretive method here. For the psalm, psalmist is hearkening back to our story of origin. We have long known that to understand our present condition, and the psalmist knew it, to better understand our future prospects, we must always be willing to look to our beginnings. For as T.S. Eliot said, in our end is our beginning, and in our beginning is our end. And the psalmist understood that in order to understand today and tomorrow, we must look at yesterday for inherent in our stories are clues, interpretive keys to understanding who we are. 
And the psalmist in Psalm 8 is simply hearkening back to Genesis 1, 26 through 27 that I want you to look at quickly with me. Then God said, let us make humankind. The second question, who are we? Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all of the wild animals of the earth. You're reading now Psalm 8 in reprise and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The next chapter is another, another telling of that same story. You see, when the editors of the Hebrew Bible some 500 years before Jesus were piecing its frame together, they were very careful to assimilate stories from a very divided Israel with many camps, with many people. And in their care to assimilate different voices of the Israelite community, Genesis, the second chapter, is the telling of another part of Israel's, another part of Israel's community, it is the telling of their original story in a different way, but it is the same story. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 even use different Hebrew words for God, completely so. So much so that our scholars know in looking at those two that they were told by completely different groups of people to the same end. And being politically correct as they redacted and edited the Bible, they were careful as they came home from bondage to put together multiple stories into one. And so Genesis 2, verses 4 through 8, tells the same story a different way. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God... Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being, a living soul. Interestingly, Israel's account of creation shares many, many similarities. This is painful to some but comforting to others. Israel's account of creation shares many, many similarities with their contemporaries from other nations. As well, this story that was told by Israel and other Mesopotamian people was preceded by, Israel, by other nations hundreds, even thousands of years before Israel. There were snakes, there were fruit, there was nakedness, there was raw sexuality, there was climate-controlled worlds. There was separations of the above and the beneath. There was a war in the heavens. Gods were divided and the worlds were created. But our people were innovative. And I believe with inspiration they were innovative. The Hebrew innovation is not so much in the details of the physical creation. Not that we were the first to talk about a fruit or a talking snake. But the Hebrew innovation instead of being in the, physical, in the physical creation, is in the fact that these Abrahamic people added to this narrative something that nobody else had put there. They added a moral, spiritual component. Theirs was an effort. Our people efforted 
to understand not simply how stars hang in the sky and why baby wolves howl, but our people were the first one to tell this story of creation with its snakes and apples. Our people were the first to tell this story in an effort to understand who we are and why we do the things we do. And what is our destiny in light of all of this? Genesis 3 is a further innovation where all of the other Mediterranean and Mesopotamian and even folk on the other side of the world were telling similar stories without even the ability to cross-pollinate and share notes. But our people were the first people to tell this story and to continue it. Genesis 3 ensues to tell the story of a perfect garden. No one else did. Genesis 3 tells the story of nakedness without shame, of that talking serpent, of a tree of life, of a spiritually poisonous fruit. But Genesis 3 goes further. The brilliance of the story that we know as ours is not in its historicity. And when we argue over old earth and young earth and try to make the Bible a book of science, it is my opinion that we miss the point by a million miles. Someone would say, but prose is so much more effective than poetry. Go home and read the Botanical Dictionary's definition of a rose and then pick up Longfellow or Wordsworth and read theirs. The dictionary will leave you vacuous. Your olfactory senses will not be stimulated by all of its big words, but Longfellow with poor grammar and no punctuation will bring you to that rose. Poetry is not less than prose. Poetry is not less than dictionary. The brilliance of our story is not in its historicity, but the remarkable inspired fact that it tells the story of every human being who has ever lived, not just two. It tells the story so profoundly that as I watch my own children grow from their nakedness into a world of shame, as I watch them wrestle with their belovedness, <laughs> I watched a little girl Last night, jealous of two other friends, I watched my own little girl as she reckoned through her own jealousy and finally ended up in a puddle at the end of our bed and she cried and her mother said, what's the real story here? And she said, I'm so ashamed of how I treated my friends. And in the shame, there was beauty for there was consciousness. The story found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is not to be labored over by scientists. It is to be poured over by parents so that they might know what to do when nakedness meets shame, when belovedness begins to be lost and sin begins to intrude. This is not to be divided so as to know what the fruit was and what was indeed original sin. No. The brilliance of our people was they found in their etiology, in their old narrative, they found the true meaning of every one of our lives. And as surely as Genesis 1 and 2 explain the biblical and historical stream of beauty, truth, and goodness, our ancestors gave us Genesis 3. They gave us a story of shame and sin and brokenness. They gave us a story of a little girl reduced to tears who has ill-treated her friends out of her own pain, out of no evil. Genesis 3 gives us an attempt to explain the fearful, broken, sinful strain that weaves its way through not only the rest of Scripture, but human existence to the present moment. In the midst of this great conflict of strains, 
Somewhere between human displays of goodness and agape and abject evil, the question rings out, what is man? Who are we? Where did we come from and where are we going? I will read now for the sake of time, but I don't know that I've ever read anything more important to this congregation. No human can avoid this question, who are we? No organization can avoid, whether it is UNICEF or ISIS, no organization will avoid this question, who are we? What are human beings? No nation can avoid this question. And as one of the leaders of this church, I will say no church can avoid this question, who are we? At Grace Point, we believe that both strains of Scripture and life are very real and they have reasons. These two strains of our goodness and our capacity for evil, this strain that runs smack down the middle of my own soul. At Grace Point, we believe that both strains are very real and have reasons that are more complex than either our ancestors or us can fully understand. While we plumb the depths of our souls, we are also exploring frontal lobes, Chris and cortexes. We are trying to discern between spirit and soul, mind and brain. At Grace Point, we believe that these strains are real and have reasons more complex than not only our ancestors, but we can fully understand. And while we indeed affirm the reality of Genesis 3, while we indeed affirm the reality of human brokenness, we deeply believe it is not our core. Our brokenness, as we read the story, is a layer of reality, a layer of reality, but not the center of our reality or identity. At Grace Point Church, we follow a long tradition in Christian history, but not a holistic one. Others disagree, and we are mindful of that disagreement and give more than a tacit nod, our hearts are open to the struggle, the argument. But we do not interpret the hopeful stream of Scripture or history through the lens of the fearful strain of the same. We do not interpret the hopefulness of Scripture through the lens of the fearfulness of Scripture. We instead interpret the fearful strain of Scripture through the hopeful strain of Scripture, and that is a choice, and a choice that every interpreter of the Bible must make. We do that not because there is a legend in the beginning or the back of the Bible that says to do this. We do this because there are more voices in our life than simply a book. There is a voice of reason, intuition, tradition, and experience. And my Lord told me that as much as I love my little one, there is a Father in heaven who loves them more. And through the experience of the scripture of my life and interaction with my children, there are reasons for me to believe that as this morning I sent my son a text message and said, happy birthday, son. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I know, Dave, that as he read that, he remembered not just days before when I crossed the line and surely said things that were not only you made a mistake, 
But the tone of my frustration was, you are a mistake. Surely in the imperfections of my parenting, there is a strain of brokenness that somewhere between his and mine in the anger of an uncontrollable 16-year-old and in the frustration of a 16-year-old who still lives in me, in the imperfection, even my children, our children will hear two strains. I only pray that at the end of their life and even now, that they will interpret the fearful and the shame-based strain through the prevailing strain of hope and love and goodness and belovedness that is at the depth of my being. I almost left the parentheses for him and said, forget everything I said two days ago when I was mad at you on a golf course. This is the way I really feel. But the reality is, he is a knothead sometime. And he can be selfish. And I see things in him that make me laugh, but in the depth, Jessica, they make me cry because it makes me afraid of what his life will be if he takes that trail of selfishness and dishonesty. There is within the bounds of human relationships and language and even within the bounds of a book we call the Bible, the inability for words to fully capture. And so we are left with two strains that recognize the knot-headedness and brokenness and even evil within us all. But there is another strain that I believe is the deeper strain. And I will forever by my own brokenness and by my children's brokenness have to interpret our selfishness and pain, our fear, our condemnation, our judgment and our punishment. But I have chosen, I believe, by the heart of God and the legend that I do find within the pages tacitly of the scripture, I have, cho I have chosen to interpret the fearful strain through the hopeful stream. We believe Genesis 1 precedes Genesis 3. We believe the image of God in us, our status of being made a little lower than God, crowned with glory and honor, is deeper than our fall. We believe in a fall, but we believe that glory and honor is not removed by the fall. For the fall is preceded by the image of God and will eventually be surpassed and supplanted by the image of God. We believe the Bible's ultimate message concerning creation and humanity is a fully mature and realized domain that can only be described as the kingdom of God. We have no full answers for what God will do with every human being, with the Hitlers of this world or the Hitlers in our own heart. But we resonate with Julian of Norwich, the old saint, that all manner of things will ultimately be well and that God will indeed be all in all and love will indeed win long before Rob Bell thought it would and long after his arguments are gone. We believe every human's first chapter is to be created in the image of God, a little lower than the creator who created them, but of the creator's substance, so much so that the creator steps back and calls it very good, crowned with glory and honor, the glory and honor of the divine. We believe that the second chapter of the human life accords with Genesis that God breathes into every baby born the breath of life and never rescinds that breath that makes them a living soul. We believe that every human is born naked and not ashamed. We believe that every human being is born the beloved child of God. We believe that in the garden of Edenic innocence, snakes like jealousy, harsh words, 
the pain of body image, the pain of being left out, the pain of being ugly, the pain of being poor. We believe that in the Garden of Edenic Innocence, not once 6,000 years ago, but every time a baby is born, we believe that snakes come. They come for some earlier than others, and they come in forms of abuse that is unrecognizable to some of you, but they come. They come in varying degrees of abusiveness, and they tempt us to depart from the one who calls us beloved. This is not the story of a woman who lived long ago. This is the story of every human being who's ever lived. There are snakes who come into the garden of our innocence. They are snakes who tell us that we are not beloved and he is not the lover. They are snakes that do not tempt us first to eat a fruit. No, the fruit comes after the real sin. And the fruit is no more than anesthetic or fallout of the true sin. These voices invade the garden of a child in many forms, but all with the same message. You are not beloved. And to some degree, so far, every human being has succumbed. Some have interpreted the Judeo-Christian story as saying that when that fall happened many thousands of years ago, our status as children of God was lost and we became simply creations of God and our lungs were not filled with the breath of God, they were merely filled with organic oxygen. Even worse, some have concluded within our systems of theology, and I understand the plausibility of their argument, but they have concluded that all is lost and we have become children of the devil. There are no doubt scriptures and a strain of the biblical text that interpreted alone could yield that conclusion. I preached that conclusion for many years. I know it well. But we at Grace Point do not believe the overarching message of scripture, Christianity, reason, or experience yields that interpretation. When our Lord spoke of our entrance into the kingdom of God or heaven, he spoke of it in a sense of returning. The words that are most clear in terms of our doctrine of salvation and redemption and our understanding of who Jesus is and who we are, those words are laced with a sense of returning. Except you become again as a little child. Except you are born again. Except you are renewed by a spiritual healing that doesn't take you, Nicodemus, back to your mother's womb, or even, Chris or Mike, to a safe place in your mother and father's house or wherever your safe place is. No, deeper than that safe place, a born-again experience that takes you back again to the womb that was the womb of God's hand when he scooped you from organic material and breathed into you. Our Lord's description of salvation is not a story of becoming who we are not. Our Lord's story of salvation is a story of returning to who we were, to being born again, again. Luke 15 tells the story of a prodigal that is the quintessential story of salvation, and the story does not say the prodigal was a creation and later, upon his right decision, became a son. The story of the prodigal is that he was born in the father's house, though he had not the ability to appropriate the benefit. The story of the prodigal is that he was born a child of the father, and the journey of his salvation was not to become a child of the father, but was to remember who he had always been. It was a story that brought him full circle, 
Not a story of a linear line from child of the devil to child of God. No, he was a child of the Father, but he took a long, circuitous, lost, far country journey. Salvation was simply when he came home to himself. That journey not only weaves itself through brothels and bar rooms, that journey weaves itself through front rows and Sunday school classes and pulpits. For the elder brother looked at the father and said, I have been here like a slave to you my whole life, and you've never thrown a party for me. And we realize that even in the father's house, identity can be lost. At Grace Point, we believe that the message of hope trumps the message of fear though we understand the two strains living concomitantly and side by side. The final thing that I would say to the question, who are we, is this. At Grace Point, we believe the journey of salvation for your child and you, the journey of salvation, as Christ tells it, is to return to the place of your beginning. You do not become a child of God. You simply finally realize it is who you have always been, this is redemption, not to become what we aren't, but to realize who we are. And that, brothers and sisters, is a plausible, hope-filled interpretation of Scripture. And I admit that there is another way of interpreting. But when we consider creation and the little girl that stood at the end of my bed last night and the knuckle-headed boy that heard me say, you are the beloved in whom I am well-pleased, we believe that as the two strains continue, that this strain from which we came will override this strain. And in the meantime, we believe it is still and yet the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our answer to the question, who are human beings? Amen? And for those who couldn't clap, I love you. It's a lot to think about, but it is who we are and what we believe. Thank you, Lord, for our time together and for this church called Grace Point and for a Savior named Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us and guiding us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you are our deliverer and our redeemer. Now may we all, with our children, from the oldest to Charlie Ray dedicated this morning, may our journeys ultimately bring us home to the home of God, our own heart, where you have made your abode. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. Go in God's grace. We'll see you in the house of the Lord for question three. How then shall we live next week?